Hey there. That's a corrupt. <laughs> Travelers to the Vegas Gang Experience for February. Well, mm, uh, Start over. <laughs> that should be the open right there. Hey there. Yeah. Hey we there. just talking. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's welcome guys? back, Cotter Hour. How are you guys doing? You know, hearing you do that intro always puts a smile on my face. So really? I'm Yeah. I'm good. It's, um, you know, we didn't do an episode in the month of January. We did two in December, so I sort of don't feel 100% bad, but I do feel a little bad because, um, <laughs> it, you know, it's really my fault. And so uh, I apologize to the fair listeners out there. They tell you, you know, all the, all the people that are successful in podcasting, they always tell you that the key to a successful podcast is to come out on a regular schedule. So, whoops. Um, so I guess that explains uh, why we are so successful. Um, <laughs> so I, I do apologize. But, you know, the, the sort of silver lining to that situation is that there's a ton of stuff to talk about. Um, the world has been rocked by recent revelations, and we will discuss them here today on the show. Um, I don't think we have any announcements that I'm aware of. We're, um, we're not in announcement season right now, but announcement season may be coming, so stay tuned for announcement season. Um, but for now, we're just going to jump right into it and talk a little bit about what's been going on. And I think it would be silly not to start the show with uh, a little discussion of Caesars Entertainment and their CEO, Gary Loveman, who announced this week that he would be leaving the post um, and turning things over to a gentleman from... Hertz, his name is not in front of me right now, but I do have it here, Mark Frisora. Um, so Gary Loveman is going to be leaving his CEO post in, I believe it is uh, July 1st, and um, he'll be the chairman of the company, so he's not leaving the company, uh, but clearly uh, a transition that has been, I would, I, well, based on everything that I've read, seems like a transition that's been in the works for a while, right? It seems like fairly orderly. This new guy um, does not have any gaming experiences, so he's sort of going to be hanging around until July 1st to learn a few things. Um, and Gary's staying on as the chairman of the board. So clearly um, not given the sort of super abrupt heave-ho that, um, that some executives are given. But... Um, Still, it's going to be a pretty big change given how long he's been in that position. He's been in various leadership positions with the company since, I don't know, the late 80s, I think. I mean, he's been there forever. Uh, and then he, of course, ascended to the top spot and um, was presiding over the company through this leveraged buyout that left them in the circumstances that they are in now where they are going through bankruptcy and some other changes, some other structural changes for part of the company in order to trim their debt load. Um, you know, this was a big story, saw it breaking on Twitter and then throughout the, uh, throughout the various channels. 
Um, one of the things it's you know we've talked about Caesars so much over the past few years, right? They they've sort of been it's amazing that they were able to postpone the bankruptcy as long as they were, um, but they finally did go through with it. And of course, we've talked about that uh, pretty much every step of the way. Um, the thing that stuck out stuck out to me through all of the various uh, news reports I read about this transition is. Um, analysts and other people quoted in these articles basically saying this was inevitable. This was not a surprise. Um, do you, Dave, I'd love to ask you this question. Was this, did you consider this to be a surprise or did you sort of see this come, one coming? I sort of saw it coming. You know, would never say told you so or anything like that, but it's not really that big of a stretch of imagination to see that, the, you know, a guy who's been the CEO of a company for a long time, you know, longer than the usual shelf life of a CEO, the company goes into prepackaged bankruptcy. Probably when it comes out, they're going to want a new strategic focus. So it seemed like it was the right time for this to happen. It's really interesting that, you know, we may, well, we'll probably never know whether, you know, how much of this was the, the folks that own the company um, basically saying just that, we need somebody new, like this is sort of a, a new lease on life and we need some new management to go with it, versus how much of this was Loveman's own decision. And you've got to think that the hell he's been through for the past few years has got to, has got to be so stressful. Um, and so I wouldn't be entirely surprised if he was kind of like, yep, this is a good time to wrap it up. I'm not going to leave you guys hanging. I'm going to take you, you know, take you through the bulk of this bankruptcy stuff. And then I'm going to step aside. So I wouldn't be, so I would not be surprised to discover that, that, uh, he's not entirely saddened by this change, by this change of turn of events. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think being CEO of a major company for 12 years is going to take its toll on you, and after a while you're probably eager to look for your next challenge or just to relax a little bit, so I can see that, I can see that definitely being part of the equation here. Yeah, um, and you know, for better or worse, uh, someone in that role, you work your ass off, um, it's just the way that it is, and granted, you're, you know, very well compensated, but it's hard work. And, um, you know, these, these guys definitely do, do put in the hours. Um, Chuck, you wrote a piece on Vegas Tripping called The Loveman Legacy. I think maybe, well, sort of reflecting a little bit on, on how you think this should be viewed. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you wrote? Sure, I can talk about that. Uh, basically, it was just trying to look at uh, the entirety of, of uh, Gary Loveman's output and how he's going to be remembered and how he probably should be remembered. Um, primarily, you know, he and his, uh, his team of mathematicians uh, came up with, uh, well, they, they appropriated from other types of uh, customer loyalty systems information, how to harvest information and use it every single piece they possibly can get to better market towards their customers. Uh, they use every single shred of information they can get to uh, help get you to come to the place, come to their casinos, no matter where they are, and spend money. Whatever it is, they'll find out that you like to drink wine, so they'll send you some things about wine. They know that uh, by your click-through rates on emails, whether or not you prefer... Uh, buy one, get one free offers at nicer places or free weekend at a shitty place. And then once they find these things out, they just mix up the offers to, to really try and get a better understanding of the data 
that yields from your actions, interactions with them. Uh, this is this is how they went from uh, from being a you know a smaller kind of operator to basically taking over half of the strip and everything else. Also discussed some of some of the failures, you know, the bad bets, the the, the leverage buyout. You know, everybody had their problems around that time, and it seems like Caesars didn't fully have their get taken to their knees. They uh, they balanced and walked the tightrope for a while, but they kept spending money. There's also the failure of not getting into Macau, which probably would have helped them quite a bit. But we all knew this was coming at some point, uh, and and you know, it's here. I can't help but the skeptic in me. Speaking of Mr. Frasora, the skeptic in me can't help but think that this Loveman stepping aside, he's not completely gone, might be just another piece of this shell game that they've been doing. Give, just offload some of just the operational work, the stuff that's just going to keep churning to uh, Mr. Frasora. That's why there's a guy with no real gaming experience. He can just keep, keep everything running while Loveman continues playing the shell game, trying to defend the assets from the bankruptcy. Hmm. And then maybe, if it all gets squared away, I would not be surprised to see G-Love back in the CEO chair. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, it'll be, there, there's a lot of different models for how active chairmen are in the various companies, right? Some of them are very hands-off, and there are others that... Um, that are, are more hands-on. So it will be very interesting to see what kind of chairman he uh, ends up being, whether he's you know, going to show up uh, four times a year for board meetings and that's about it, or if he's going to be in there uh, tinkering with uh, the total rewards algorithm like he, uh, <laughs> like he probably is every day. Yeah. Um, I thought, you know, looking at your, at your post, uh, I think it is important to take a sort of wider view, right? Of course... It's impossible not to look at the LBO as part of his legacy because yeah. it is. Yeah. But there's a lot more to it. Um, I think you know both a lot of uh, a lot of pluses, a lot of things that have worked out really well. Where if you sort of were able to sort of magically take the LBO out of the mix, I think would have um, had some outsized contributions. But a couple of the things that didn't work out so well um, and may have. Uh, longer-term impacts. I mean, the biggest thing that comes to mind for me is the Macau situation, right? Caesars yeah. did not get into Macau, whereas you know some of their U.S. competitors did, and were able to turn that into a sort of money-making, a money-printing machine, and in, in in some cases, like literally saved the operations of some of these companies, right? Yeah. It's hard to imagine where Las Vegas Sands would be today if they didn't have Macau Resorts. Uh, during that time period, they'd probably be out of business. Um, so, you know, I, looking back at the Macau thing, I just you still wonder: could they have done something differently? Obviously, there's a lot of moving parts there. Yeah. Um, but could they have done something differently that would have enabled them to get into that market? Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll probably they could have. They could have <laughs> tried to buy Galaxy or any number of other people's. They could have tried to take over Melco. Probably, I, if I was spending eighteen billion dollars or twenty-eight, or however, however many billions of dollars the original um, LBO was, it seems like obviously I have the, the benefit of uh, retrospect. But um, 
you know, being able to, to take a, a position in one of those operators seems like it would have been dollars better spent. Yeah. Yeah, if I could jump back in for a second. So um, next week in 7, I've got a piece coming out where I'm looking at the legacy that Loveman left. And in some ways parallels what Chuck says, but in some ways not. Because I, I, I take it back to when he started as chief operating officer, which if you look at the history of acquisitions is when they really started to acquire other companies. And I see the total rewards as being the things that, that make that possible. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of that paradox of, so he, when Phil Satry was running the company, they had all these regional properties that they grew kind of organically, one at a time, and they didn't have that big thing to compete with in the Strip. And Satry had considered buying another property in the Strip, but didn't. This is back in the mid-90s. You know, there, I remember reading some articles in the trade journals back then, you know, where well, is Harris going to buy this land? Well, no, they're not. And he was talking about building something new and then didn't because he said, well, I just don't think that the returns are there and it's too competitive compared to other markets. So it, as early as 1998, when he comes on as chief operating officer, they start to change that strategy and they start to buy up stuff. And first it's one or two things. So, you know, Showboat and then Rio and then Players International, and then Binion's Horseshoe. But it's interesting because it's totally changing the way their whole strategy. So it's neat how that kind of flipped it. I'll also say that I've always been a little bit of a skeptic around total rewards, and I'm not sure that the kind of what's printed on the label matches the product that you get with it. Because I live in Las Vegas, and I keep on getting emails telling me to pack my bags for Las Vegas. Ah. And whenever I mention that to anybody, they completely no-sell it. I'm like, yeah, but it's still a brilliant brilliant yeah. market. It's like, yeah, but they don't have a simple you know, zip code, yeah. whatever, filter in there. Like how... <clears throat> so in some I, ways, it, yeah. it's maybe almost a testament to how sort of back-ass words the whole casino industry is when it comes to technology. The fact that what is maybe not super cutting-edge tech compared to other industries is considered industry-leading. Yeah. Yeah, and that that always that strikes me as weird that you don't that's this great vaunted database. I just think they could probably make better use of it. And the the thing that I've always seen with the company the um, the company is that it's not a question of can you get an answer to the question. It's are you asking the right questions. And I think having all that data leads them to ask a certain set of questions that leads them in a certain direction. Hmm. Right. If that means anything. No, I think it's an it's an interesting insight. I. He, uh, you know, he's an interesting character and uh, has definitely had a huge hand in shaping the industry during his tenure. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what this new guy does. I mean, you sort of read not a whole lot of info on him, but the stories about this transition pretty consistently mention the fact that he left Hertz last September. And there's sort of sounds like a little bit of a cloud around that. Like, it's not entirely clear. He says it was personal reasons, but you'll see a lot of other reporting that suggests there's more to it, i.e., like, there are some financial issues that were uh, operational. I don't know. It says here in the Review Journal, uh, push the investors in the company pushed for his removal, citing accounting and operational missteps. So I I don't know what happened there, but ideally um, this dude isn't like tainted or have some kind of issues that are going to, to follow him around. I, the, the parallels between the companies are interesting. I mean, in a lot of ways, completely <laughs> different, right? But they, do, they are managing data. They, they do have a lot of far-flung outposts. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what this guy does if he is a, a caretaker 
um, or if he's in it for the long haul. It's hard to imagine uh, somebody having as long of a tenure as Loveman, um, but it will be interesting to see if he is uh, in here to sort of get it healthy and then he's on his way, whether they go public or whatever happens to the company. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. be interesting to see. Are you super no. excited about the Hertz guy? Well, not knowing anything about him personally, I, it's, it's an interesting choice, and I think it shows you where the big shareholders are thinking the company is going since it's this, they go with a guy who ran a company that's kind of customer service, customer relations. They didn't go with somebody who'd ran a tech company or somebody who'd ran an entertainment company or a hospitality company. They really see it as, I don't want to say not glamorous customer relations, but not, but sort of work a day sort of stuff you know mm-hmm. car rental isn't exactly you know it's not like you're bringing over the ceo of four seasons or something right. or the ceo of uh man i'm blanking on the name of it the the george lucas special effects thing okay uh, whatever that's called yeah i was thinking jpl but that's a totally <laughs> different thing jet propulsion <laughs> laboratory that would be awesome if you did bring over the, the head of the jet propulsion lab laboratory to run that yeah so yeah like the head of industrial light magic you know it's it's interesting the ways that you could steer it since the gaming business touches all these other businesses so it's kind of that that to me is kind of fascinating that's a little bit of an insight into where they're thinking what kind of company they think it is i wonder you know, Harris or sorry, Harris Caesars must have a pretty deep bench of talent. Why not promote somebody that's been at the company for a long time? Uh, I, you know, there are, I'm sure reasons, right? You could sort of say, well, we need somebody with a fresh take. You know, we've, we're going through this big change, but I'm sure that there are some number twos and number threes there that we're expecting to be Loveman's heir apparent. It's because Loveman's coming back. that does support your hypothesis I don't know you just wonder about I mean you know it's I'm sure a company full of SVPs and EVPs that would love to have that job um, and were passed over I wonder if you wonder when that sort of thing happens if we'll see some of those people leave um, just because you know they wanted that gig and they're not going to get it so time to move on he's a substitute teacher (laughs) really I I will say they kind of Related to that, uh, I did an interview and, and the uh, reporter was asking me, well, where, where is he going to go to next? Is he going to go to another gaming company? And I was saying, well, no, kind of you can't really go from running Caesars Entertainment to being the GM of whatever, some riverboat somewhere. That's not going to really work. And the only place he possibly could go would be to one of the manufacturers. You know, you could do that kind of lateral move. And there's, what, like two of them left? And they both are pretty much fixed for leadership. So, yeah, I don't know. If he does not stay with the company, there's really not too much else I would think that there would be for him to do in the gaming industry. It would probably just be uh, going back to teaching or consulting or doing something else. Right. Uh, yeah, I go ahead, Chuck. Well, the one thing, a couple things about this for Sora guy, he, uh, you know, hurts his travel industry adjacent. Mm-hmm. So, there's that. But they didn't get a finance guy, mm. like, like a Murin or a, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of deal. Maybe they figure that you know their their financial problems are all going to get flushed with Gary, so they don't need a finance guy. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Interesting question. I you know I don't I don't I don't know what to think about this for Sora dude. Um, mostly because I don't know anything about him, but. Uh, 
I think it is interesting that they didn't hire from within the industry, whether it was the company or not. You can imagine, I'm sure that there's some, you know, sort of good second tier talent at all these companies that a, a second tier person at MGM or something wanted to wanting to make the jump to a big job. I mean, those kind of moves are sort of maybe expected. I don't know. I this guy, I had never heard of this guy before, and that you know maybe doesn't mean anything, but. Um, it, it's interesting to see. I, I, I would love to hear more about sort of the the search process that the board went through to find him and the kinds of people that they vetted for this job because mm-hmm. it'd be really interesting to see what their short list looked like. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm not sure you're going to see a lot of movement around in the gaming industry at that level. It's not like it was back in the 90s when Terry Lanny could go from running Caesars to running MGM and you had people leaving at that level. I think now, the way the industry is, people are kind of brought on at a certain level, they rise up a little bit, and then when they're done with that company, they're done. Yeah. We need to bring Glenn Schaefer to come and run Caesars Entertainment. Yeah. That would be awesome. How about I- John Unwin? Well, we can talk about that real fast because I don't think that we talked about that ever, right? So he's out at Cosmopolitan, um, and our my friend and yours, Bill Macbeth, is now uh, is now in. Who was uh, shit can slash left the Aria job um, a few years ago? Um, I I know nothing. I allege nothing. Um, do not don't sue me. Um, but you know he's now at, at Cosmopolitan. Um, that one seems that one seemed incredibly inevitable, right? Um, yep. Unwin leaving, right? We to the, I mean, the terms of uh, the financial terms of his exit were in their finance or in their disclosure statements for like the last few years. So it was basically just watching the clock as the um, as the acquisition was completed that uh, that he was going to be on his way out. Um, I will it be interesting to see. Um, what he does next, right? So he was in the industry for a long time on the hotel side, ran Cosmopolitan. They didn't have – it's hard to sort of benchmark Cosmo, right? Because in some ways they've really succeeded and they've sort of carved out a, a pretty significant name for themselves in a lot of people's heads. But like financially, they've been kind of a turd. So are they are they a success? Um, I mean obviously if you just look at the numbers, no. But there's more to it than that, right? There's – they have a lot of mind share um, that they have accumulated, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's an interesting question. And and what is uh, the new management going to do as they uh, as they take over? I don't know. Are you? Uh, how do you feel about this one, Chuck? Do you feel like uh, Cosmopolitan a is a success? Thing? Cosmopolitan is definitely a success. The doors okay. are open. Everything's getting better. They're they're not really changing too much. They're not. The only things that changed was the show, but that was more of a weird contractual freakout. You know, it seems like it's been a pretty consistent place. The people who were there after they fired the uh, the first wave of incompetence, uh, they've got a real solid team. Uh, Tom McCartney, I don't know if he's still there, but uh, he basically put a lot of those things back together. I don't see this thing as, as failing on any level at all. It just swept the entire Trippies readers poll that we... Right. Uh, that we put up, people love it, and I think the fact that it is independent is fantastic. And, the, and even more evidence, you see Aria, who uh, internal documents showed before Cosmo opened, they didn't see Cosmo as a threat. They right. didn't see it threatening any of their dining, any of their other venues, or the casino, or the shows. But Aria 
has is swapping out restaurants left and right, and all the new ones are coming with wax mustaches, you know, to try and capture the uh, the mind share of the cosmopolitan. Right. You know, so the proof is in the pudding. What here. is mind share? Uh, mind share. Uh, well, yeah. Sorry. Um, I, I. It sounds those, like it sounds like an ISP from the late nineties. <laughs> it is. It's one of those buzzwords that I I hear and think of with such disdain. But basically, the idea that it's captured a lot of people's attention. Like it's it, people are talking about cosmopolitan. When you people know about it, people are like, "Oh, I've heard about that place. I want to stay there." That that's basically what I mean. Okay. Is it something that thought leaders do? Yes, exactly. Dave, you know okay. exactly what I'm talking about. Good, good. So this uh, is six years, right? Cosmos coming up on six years being open, and it's geez, still... Really? No, it can't I'm, be that long. No. It was 2010. It was December 2010. Oh, no. Encore well, that means, was over. That means it's coming up on five years at the end of five the year. Coming, coming up on five years. I'm like, dude, I'm not that old. Come on. Here you are. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I, you know, I, it, it, I think it will be interesting to see if they make any strategic changes. I mean, obviously, they can't go on losing money forever. So they either have to find a way to make more money, like whether it's increasing volume or changing some things around. Um, they've got to find a way to, to at least get into the black. I mean, the people didn't buy it for, to, as a charity. I mean, resort fees. Yes, indeed. They're going, going up and up everywhere, which is unfortunate, but I don't want to get sucked into the black hole that is resort fee discussion. Well, they just raised it, you know, just now. So it's yes. now 30 bucks. That's, that's one thing that they've done. I imagine we're probably going to see the entertainment returning uh, to that Rose Rabbit, whatever it is. And uh, has it returned already? I don't know. I, but yeah. uh, the, uh, also the, the Chelsea, and then they're going to probably amp up their entertainment offerings. You know, it's all these little bits and pieces. There's not really too much that they can rip out and redo. Maybe we'll see some restaurants moving, but I don't know. Seems like they do pretty well there. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, historically, they, I'm sure, would love to make a little bit more money from their casino. Yeah. Um, and so, exactly. you know, as many lovers as they can pull to sort of make that happen. <laughs> maybe that's a uh, that's a nice pun. I didn't that's a good do one. That. That's I wouldn't good even one. do that intentionally. <laughs> um, You're that good. Uh, and um, so, you know, keep turning those knobs. But um, yeah, I, it's interesting to uh, sort of note uh, the change in leadership there, and it'll yeah. we'll see if anything changes operationally. I guess it's hard. It would, it's hard to sort of determine if. Since they're changing owners at the same time, you know, sort of where the uh, where the dictates are going to come from if things start changing around. But it will be interesting to see. Obviously, Macbeth has got a long history in the gaming industry and has run a lot of successful places. So um, he's definitely got that going for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's uh, hop in our Winnebago and drive down to SLS, which stands for SLS. Um, <laughs> So, we've talked about SLS uh, several times since the property opened, given the turmoil in their own management situation. Um, that seems to have settled down a little bit, but um, sort of, there's two p- things I wanted to talk about here. One was um, just noting um, some restaurant changes there. Uh, their pancake joint, Griddle Cafe, has been changed out to a, what sounds like a more traditional kind of cafe. Um, you know, There's sort of two sides to this coin, right? Any new place tweaks stuff, figures out what works and what doesn't. Um, The the 
situation here, honestly, I feel like seems different to me. It feels like they're having, there's maybe having, they're working a little bit harder than they maybe thought they were going to have to work. And, um, things have been a little bit tougher. You still pretty consistent, not scientific, but you still pretty consistently hear stories about people spending time there and the place being pretty much empty. Uh, so, you know, if, if those things are more than just anecdotal, then it's, uh, sounds like it's a bit of a slog for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's been some consistent rumors about some of these other places closing, which would be, I think, you know, for a place that really built its whole vibe around the restaurants and the nightclubs, it would be a pretty significant moment if some of these places did end up closing. Chuck, what do you think? Oh man, you know, God, you know, their, their whole theorem, the whole Raison d'être is uh, Ooh, sweet. Thank you. Sorry, I've been I've been studying Rush lyrics. Um, did, Dave, did you watch Beyond the What is Beyond the Lighted Stage? It was yeah, on oh, yeah. Palladium the other night, and I was watching it. I've seen I a couple more of it. I haven't, yeah, I didn't watch that recently, but I have yeah. it committed to memory. But yeah. uh, anyway, their their reason for yeah. existence uh, has always been that they have all these. <laughs> great in-house SBE brands that they can leverage to bring all the great people who love all these brands in Los Angeles to their property, and they're just going to love all the brands that they love back home. Uh, and this was the, the thing that was going to set them apart. And you tack on to that the fact that they've got one of the most exciting chefs in the known universe right now who is basically being their dining curator and he's opened two restaurants in that place. He has two at Cosmopolitan as well. Well, three. Uh, Jose Andres. And if any of these things kind of close, it's really sort of bad news uh, for them. Because they've put a lot of stock in this and a lot of stock in uh, the fact that Foxtail was going to bring all these Angelinos. And same with the, the Life Nightclub. And as it turns out, the theory is, is kind of failed. It's kind of failing um, who knows how long they're going to be able to keep this thing going, but it's obvious that the demand they expected from their brands is, is not happening. There's so many other options on the strip for sushi. You know, really, it's, right. it's kind of amazing that they thought that these things were going to last. Is this the case of them overestimating the palates of the market? I mean, if they had to put in Guy Fieri or... Margaritaville? Well, when you think about their neighborhood, right? I mean, they, they, at least in the conversation that I had with Oslin, he spoke to that specifically, saying, you know, we realize that the neighborhood is a little bit more on the, and I, he definitely didn't use the word downscale, but he's on, more on sort of the lower end of the, of the people's budgets. We want to be the place where the circus circus uh, guest you know, has, has their nice dinner on their trip, right? They come over to SLS and have their <laughs> nice meal at, at our place. That is, they, you know, that they were at least, at least, uh, you know, trying those lines on to see if they would fit. But, um, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why would you walk across the street to go to 500 degree pizza when there's like probably four pizza places over there, you know? And they don't even have a good cafe, like the cafe at at uh, at uh, Circus Circus is open all the time, right? Right, but but True. the griddle closes at three in the afternoon. That seems like a pretty significant misstep. Obviously, they corrected that, right? But that yeah. seems just like that's one where you look. I didn't realize that the griddle cafe 
was their menu was so myopic. Like I didn't realize yeah. it was like just pancakes. Um, they have other things like omelets and things, but that's it. It's breakfast food from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. and they close in the one yeah. in Hollywood. Hmm. That's it. In retrospect, hmm. that seems insane. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, I feel like, you know, having built their whole concept around the clubs and the restaurants, that some of these places closing is more notable than it would be than some some otherwise successful casino closing out, changing out a restaurant, right? Someone on Facebook was suggesting that, you know, you know other places change their restaurants all the time. This is not the same thing at all. No, um, so it's not at all like uh, Vince Neal's tattoo auto closing at the Westgate? Right, it's not. Huh. No. These are SBEs, this is the foundation of their business, is dining and clubbing. And they're failing in all of it. So if it's, but if it's a brand that's worked, so if it's a restaurant that's worked, do you think it's just the location here in, in, in at that part of the strip, or is it just well, that this wouldn't work anywhere in Vegas? So if you put worked this in, in quotes, right? Yeah. I mean, like you got to take into the thing that you have to take into consideration when, especially when you're importing brands from other places that have worked well. The f- competition on the Las Vegas Strip is fucking brutal. Like yeah. it is. You have every option at every single price point, and you know there. And in many cases, um, you know, pretty deep pockets behind some of these operations. Like it is harder to compete there than it is to compete anywhere else. I would argue for food and beverage type stuff. Like uh, you know, maybe New York City is a is a is um, in the same boat. But like it, you can pretty much get anything you want. So something that works in one market just may not have what it takes to compete on the strip. I mean, it's just, it is like a whole, it's like the major leagues, right? It's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. You've got me thinking. So I was thinking Umami Burger is probably one of the better known brands. Yeah. And you could see how they are so much burger competition right now. I could see how that would be difficult, you know, where people who are looking for that kind of burger probably are going to be going to Gordon Ramsay right now. So if you put that into Aria, would that work? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think something like Jose Andres, the steak joint, that's the only place you can get that, right? So, and he's mm-hmm. got a name, like, that thing seems like, assuming that people are willing to trek and they market it properly, that seems like it could work. It's a destination yeah. restaurant. People go there for that. Yeah. They, they make the reservation three months in advance because they really want to go to that fucking place. That is, that's way different than an undercooked burger place or another pizza place. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting to see how this is going. Uh, obviously, uh, they've got a lot of work to do. You know, um, w- one more thing I want to tack yeah. on to this. And this was my s- skepticism way back when, when they first bought the Sahara. Because I know the SBE joins, because I live in L.A., right? right? I live here, right? Right. Every once in a while, when I was uh, when I was working, we'd go to lunch at this place called the Abbey. right. Right? It's basically a little outside garden with maybe 30 tables, and they serve sandwiches and stuff. And at night, they, they serve beer, too. And it's not that fancy. It's not that great of a place. There's nothing about it that's all that interesting. you know. But it's in the neighborhood, and it's a place you go to because you can. So then you know, the, the, all the PR comes out that they're buying this place, and they mention... You know, that we own the Abbey, and they're touting this thing as the greatest thing in the world. 
I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm a little skeptical about this because I've been to the Abbey and they think that bringing all these things is going to make a difference. It's not going to make a difference. You know, they're, they're overstating the value of their brands. They're successful because they put the place in the right spot. All the people in Hollywood who need some place to eat, there's a sushi place, there's a this, there's a that. And they're kind of poked around within walking distance and, and things like that. But I think they overvalued the importance of their brands in a, in a market that has no clue. And the people who are thinking they could rely on locals from L.A. to constantly go to their joints is a failure. I'm not going to go there when I go to L. When I go to Vegas, I'm not going to go eat at those places. I'd rather go to, you know, the Mirage and eat at the new place there. Right. And hmm. other people have made that point, right? Like, yeah. why if you live five minutes from one of these places, why would you ever go there when you're in Las Vegas? Right. Like, I totally get why. Like, if you live on the East Coast, maybe you want to go to In and Out when you're in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. never go to In and Out in Las Vegas because there's one ten minutes <laughs> from my house. Yeah. And so I wouldn't even like it wouldn't even consider it. No. Um, and it's the same, exactly the same kind of logic, right? It's like yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, the other thing in relation to SLS I wanted to mention was EB5 because you know we talked about EB5. I remember writing about EB5 on Two Way Hard Three like ten thousand yes. years ago. Yep. Um, it made but, me think of that actually. Yeah. Well, it's like you know, and you've written about it a lot, Chuck. It's this this government program, which frankly, if we're being going to be honest, it's basically like selling green cards. Um, and the problem, I guess, is that people have figured that out. And so now it's um, getting some attention, uh, especially since it sounds like some of the people that have participated in this program um, maybe shouldn't have been given uh, immigration status into the United States for all kinds of sketchy reasons. Um, we see, we hear stories about, you know, the, the situation where potentially um, Harry Reid's office was pressuring the Homeland Security Department to try and push some of this stuff through because, you know, he's trying to secure investment for his state. Um, but it may mean, ultimately, you know, there's people are looking at this more closely now. This is a tool that was really important for SLS and um, was also used, I think, downtown Grand. And I know Resorts World's looking at it. And I'm sure there's probably other places, too. Lucky Dragon. Um, Lucky Dragon, maybe yep. unlucky Dragon. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, this could could close off a, a potentially major source of funding for some of these places. Um, SLS literally wouldn't exist if it wasn't for EB five. Well, at least on face value, right? Who knows? But uh, it was a hugely important part of their of their financing. Um, I, I think it's interesting that this is uh, that's being looked at. Um, I don't know. Any any thoughts from either one of you guys on, on the implications of this? Um, is this going to be something that we feel uh, in the market? I don't really know because you're going to find that money from somewhere. So it is probably going to – if anything, it's going to raise more barriers to entry. So somebody who might be kind of marginally able to get into the market because of this is going to be shut out. Hmm. Right. I think that's the key, right? So the wins and the MGMs and the LVSs of the world are going to be able to raise money, right? They may not always get the rates that they want, but they're going to be able to raise money. Um, even the Elons of the world are probably going to be able to raise money. Um, but the SLSs of the world, where they sort of get halfway through conventional bankers and don't, you know, their plan might work, but it's a little bit more of a long shot and yeah. the terms might not be so good. Those are the guys that aren't going to get their funding if programs like this go away. 
So something like I mean, you mentioned Lucky Dragon. I mean, that's you know, frankly, uh, Bill Widener is like a known guy in the gaming industry. But it, is that place going to get a lot of attention from financiers without a program like this? I kind of doubt it. I couldn't tell you. It's hard to tell, you know. But you know, it, it might mean that if that the bankers are right. Like, stuff that the bank is not going to... Right. The guys who do the money and the due diligence and say, well, based on X, Y, Z, Dave, you know the numbers. This is going to work. This is not going to work. Right. Or however you guys, the spreadsheet works. That those guys know what they're doing. And this thing is basically a way to, to sell green cards, to get cash for investment, and to get rich people out of China. The thing, though, like... So it, that's, I think, an interesting way of looking at it, right? Because if you sort of look at the merits of these projects, SLS, well, unclear. But if it does fail, then maybe, you know, it shouldn't have gone ahead. Um, Downtown Grand, also unclear. But again, struggling, probably a sketchier investment that didn't attract a lot of sort of top, the top tier financiers, mm-hmm. um, or at least in the, in the quantities that were necessary to fully fund the project. The thing that I think is interesting, though, is Resorts World. Right, because we are looking yeah. at this project like it's going to be this amazing thing, this gift to Las Vegas, you know, being put together by a, a very successful company. Um, it'll be, I think, it's very interesting to consider how it might be impacted by by this, and whether or not you know it can complete its financing without it. Um, assuming that the program is either slowed down or halted, I mean, maybe who knows? Maybe the maybe if everything is going to continue. Uh, and there won't be any impact at all. But um, it seems like, uh, at a minimum, people are taking a closer look. And anything that sort of gets branded with, like, the, oh, we're letting terrorists into the country, probably isn't going to... <laughs> probably is going to get a little bit more scrutiny, whether it's deserved or not, just because of the political football that that stuff can be. So, I don't know. I think, I think it's really interesting. Go ahead, Chuck. I'm, I'm compelled to think about, when we talked about uh, the Nazarian thing, how Dave mentioned that... Uh, the gaming control board doesn't want anything that's going to, uh, you know, embarrass the state, embarrass right. the state's industry, and this kind of does, to a degree. Well, and the other thing about eventually. the, res- the thing about Resorts World, sorry to steamroll, but uh, they're a Malaysian company using a U.S. government program to build a foreign-backed resort in the U.S. Right. You might think maybe. This government program should be based on American companies. It's an interesting question, right? It I mean, is. obviously they're going to be employing Nevada American people, right? Right. So, I mean, that's a pretty important piece of this whole thing, right? So, it's obviously Resorts World being built, uh, assuming it's uh, not a dismal failure, will support the Nevada economy, um, which is, you know, I'm sure the the important piece for people like Harry Reid and. You know the governor of Nevada and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see if um, if it has any impact on on Resorts World uh, at all as they're trying to put this stuff together. All right. So we've touched on a few things. There were still a couple other things I wanted to touch on before we wrapped up. Um, the Riviera. This might be a short topic because I don't think there's a lot of information out there right now. But there, there's a rampant rumor uh, floating around that the Riviera has been sold, um, <laughs> and uh, there's at least some speculation that it's being sold to be leveled, 
and turned into um, some other kind of used for some other purpose. Um, and there's uh, an, another sort of tangent on that rumor that it's just uh, it's been. It's being purchased, um, and it's going to be used for gaming. It's just going to be repurposed. So, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I, I guess, the ob- since we don't know anything, um, I think the obvious sort of fun, speculative angle we can take is who is going to buy the Riviera? Now, let's, just, <laughs> let's assume for a second that it's not being flattened to turn, being turned into a shopping mall, because that would be depressing. Let's yeah. assume that it's going to be used uh, as a casino, whether it's going to be augmented or refurbished or whatever. But, you know, our good friend um, Derek Stevens has had some uh, financial uh, participation in the Riviera. Do we think uh, Derek's making a big play to go up on the strip? I don't know. Honestly, this is the first I've heard of it, so I guess I'm not uh, keeping my ear to the ground enough. But it's an interesting question. You know, if SLS was a huge smashing success, you could probably see there's a lot that would be a lot more interest there right now. So it's kind of, it's, would be a, it's a tough location for sure. And I'm not sure who would really want to get in there right now. Yeah, I agree. It, it is, it does seem like, um, you would, I, I think it would have to be like dirt cheap for it to really make sense because mm-hmm. of where we sort of are economically and where the neighborhood is at, uh, it would have to, it would have to be really cheap. I hope that, you know, assuming that these are, that these rumors are true, I hope it's not going to be turned into a, a shopping mall, um, just because you know it would be sort of a sad piece of history disappearing. Yes. Well, even though, frankly, it is kind of in disrepair and kind of gross, but um, still, that would be sad. Anything can be fixed. Well, you know, but fifty-year-old plumbing—I don't know. Well, right, they might be better good. off. Well, they not did the bills. It. Yeah. yeah. 50-year-old plumbing supports service, luxury, and style. So there you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know. It, uh, the, um, the, the, uh, the word on the street is that we should actually uh, – we'll either hear something soon or it'll fizzle away and become nothing, in which case I will subsequently edit the segment out of the show. Please. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, these kinds of rumors are always fun to talk about, you know, yeah, no matter exactly. what. The Riviera, right? Listen – any investor is going to tell you that you want to buy something at at a point in the market where the asset is not necessarily bleeding anymore, but it's at the bottom of where it's going to be. And considering the the failure, the well questioned the quasi failure of SLS and the other problems around there, uh, and the projects that are coming. You know, this could potentially be seen as the bottom of the curve of where the Riviera is. It's not bleeding anymore. You know, it's not a constant state of disaster. It's a perpetual state of just a head above water, barely. You know, so if you were wanting to buy and extract value out of this thing over a longer period of time, now would be probably a good time to buy that property. I you think, could make some incremental upgrades, you know, to change things piece by piece, redo the casino floor, rethink the entertainment, just start selling a lot of alcohol, you know, and turn the volume up inside. <laughs> and, and I think little by little you might find some things might start to happen. 
You know, I think the, and the key, though, I think, is somebody that has enough money to yeah. bankroll it for a while, That's understanding right. that it's going to be a long-term play. You yeah. can't come in and be like, we're going to turn this sucker around in the next six months because that's yeah. just not realistic. No. there's. No. I think there's real challenges there, and I think it's because of the whole geopolitical system or situation right now and what's going on in China. So if you look at it, so for the past two years or so, a lot of the strip has been sustained by that high-end play coming over from Asia. That kind of starts to waver a little bit. And the past six months haven't really been good for the strip. If you look at the numbers, they're not really that positive. So, and I think maybe four or five out of the past six months have been declines in the strip. So, not really good. So, that puts pressure on the big players who had been getting all this money from there. So, where are they going to go? Well, they're going to start going after that next tier of people, which means right. that there's less room. The people at the bottom, just like during the recession, it was the people at the bottom who got squeezed when everybody else dropped their room rates and you know properties like the Hilton never recovered from that so i think it's and you know look at what tropicana had to do to try to get out of that yeah so i think we could be facing something like that you know not be, because the domestic spend hasn't really gone back up and i've got another so after Two weeks after the Loveman profile thing, I'm going to have a piece about this, kind of where the numbers are heading. It's kind of interesting because on one hand, in fiscal 2014, strip casinos made more money than they ever had. On the other hand, the gaming is not back up to where it was, and I don't think it's realistic to think it will. So you've really got to rethink the revenue model if you're going to go in there. Yeah. So I was thinking just beer. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because you're not going to be able to compete with the retail gambler because right. they don't have the money that they do. And if they do, they're plunking it away at total rewards or someplace like that. So, yeah, beer is a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> it's real simple, man. Beer, yeah. music, beer, music, and people will gamble. Quarter of the day, beer is a good place to start. I love <laughs> it. Um, I want to talk about two more things, I think, before we wrap it up. One is a, just a quick little... Ping, which is um, friend of the show, Jennifer Dunn, formerly uh, uh, communications honcho at uh, Wynn Resorts, an all-around nice lady, um, is going to be moving into a position at Elan. Is that my pronouncing that right? Um, Elan, um, which is I think uh, it's more a like Elan. Elan, okay. Because the well, accent's we, on the first e, so it's not we'll, Elan. It's Elan. Elan. All right. We'll leave exactly. the pronunciation guide to Chuck. Um, but it, uh, it is the project on the Frontier site, the Packer, Pascal, Osland, Dunn project, <laughs> that I have now christened it, um, P- which is great. P-P-O-D. You know, she's this super awesome uh, person. I am excited to have her come back to uh, Las Vegas after a brief uh, stint overseas. Um, but I think it's interesting from the perspective of bringing back folks that have worked together at Wynn, you know, arguably... Um, the most interesting Las Vegas gaming company, or at least the one with uh, it, it, what, at least one that has a, a really sort of strong, firm heritage of, of service and just interesting culture. They are bringing these people back together that that used to be there that really helped build the place, and so yeah. it'll be uh, that only makes me more excited about Elon, whatever the hell it's called. Elon. Um, Elon. I mean, Elon. I'm never, now, I, now I'm never going to get it right. Right now, I have imprinted <laughs> how. I think, you know, I'm not totally sure that's going to be the name. I think it might be another Lorev thing where 
you've got people who call Arya the area. Right. And how, yeah, I don't know, man. Cool. <laughs> Not sure if it's going to make it past the focus groups or whatever. I, well, I think this thing is just to call it Elon because it's kind of like lame. Because <laughs> yeah. these are the people who all left yeah. after Steve and Elaine split up. So just call it the Elaine. <laughs> yeah, it would be awesome. Yeah. That would be so awesome. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even know like how to contain the awesomeness that that would be. Yeah. Dinner at Elaine's. We're going to eat at Elaine's tonight. It would yeah, be, it would just on be grand so opening, we're going to be so eating at Elaine's with uh, with Andy and Rob and Jen. <laughs> oh, I, it would just be so incredibly funny if they did that. But uh, um, anyway, congrats to her. Um, I'm excited about that project. I think they've got some pretty incredible people there. So it'll be very interesting to see how it forms up. Yep. Um, before we close out, real quick ping on Wind Resorts earnings. Um, down... Uh, you know, the Macau thing is hitting all these folks that are um, super invested there hard as the as we are having, uh, as we're seeing people. The gaming win fall. Um, Dave, I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, Win and as well as others are spending a lot of money to build these massive new, I'm sure, beautiful resorts on Kotai. Is that still smart, um, given what's happening with Macau? I think it is, and what everybody says and what the numbers bear out is that you do have the VIP market shrinking because of all what's going on there, but the mass market has been growing. And if you look at the Macau numbers, which are on the Center for Gaming Research website, just updated them, you can see that the non-VIP Baccarat still grew last year. So that part of it is growing, and if you build a resort that can cater to that mass market crowd, you'll be in pretty good shape, because the fundamentals are still good. You've got 1.4 billion people in China, and they like to play Baccarat, so you definitely want to still be there. So, yeah, it's not not the sky is falling. I agree with Dave. Uh, You know, the the, uh, downtown Macau is basically a much smaller, much more condensed uh, all the properties are, are smaller, smaller rooms, you name it. Um, but the scale of Kotai is ginormous, and it's really more about people, like just getting a lot of people in through the property. So I think this shift away from, from VIP to really making this mass market, this is the, this is the Macau that everybody's going to go to, not just the well-heeled connected with the junkets. So it's going to happen long term. It's going to crush. Well, and you could say that, frankly, while I'm sure that um, these companies aren't super thrilled about uh, about these, this turn of events, wouldn't you rather have a market that's mo- more tuned to the mass market? The VIP play is so volatile. Yeah. And so, you know, you're talking about huge swings in major, many directions. The mass market is sort of, you know, it... it the math, I think, would work better for you, assuming that volume is there, right, to support it. But it seems like I would rather uh, rather cater to that crowd if I was uh, doing my financial analysis. It's a balance. You want to have a little bit of everything. Yes, a little of everything. I, let, I agree. Um, when Palace not opening before Chinese New Year 2016, perhaps not. You know, that's uh, the sort of, I think, the date they were hoping for, given the prominence of the holiday in that region. Um, sounds like things have slipped a little bit, though. They're still planning to open in the first half of 2016. So, uh, you know. Uh, did you did you guys listen to the call? Uh, no. Only part of it. 
Yeah, it was funny when he was talking about that because because he's just we just we just found out about it and. Then he went on to say, well, I'm going to talk to them tomorrow. <laughs> you can imagine what that conversation is going to be like, right? So yeah. I'm going to fix, I'm going to figure it out tomorrow. So I'm, I imagine by the next call, he's going to be like, we're back on track. It's going to happen in Chinese New Year. But right. one other he thing. He said he was, he was eating a salad at people or something. Well, in the end, he's, you know, whenever Robin Farley from UBS gets on the call, he's always, hi, Robin. He gets very kind of chatty and, uh. You know, she, uh, I guess he likes her. So he's kind of flirting with her a little bit. And then in the middle of his answer, you know, he's chomping on his salad and stuff. Just he, It seems like he's always eating lunch during the earnings call. It's kind of fun. It must what be I, awesome to be able to do that. Yeah. In fact, I think I've got a salad right here. Do you guys mind if I... Uh, I do mind. Okay. Yeah. One other thing about the call I wanted to throw out to you guys was Steve, uh, he mentioned... The, uh, a, an analyst asked him about uh, capacity going forward in uh, in Vegas, and Steve answered the question by talking about Resorts World and Elon. Yeah, and he said, uh, you know, he never mentioned Andrew Pascal by name, and he didn't mention the name of the resort. Maybe he doesn't know. He doesn't read VT. That's a shame. <laughs> but he didn't. And and. Uh, he talked about the numbers, $2 billion here, $4 billion here. There's going to be $6 billion worth of, of work in front of, right in front of our 2,000 feet that faces the strip. And I love that. He got very excited saying that he's going to be the, he's going to be the beneficiary of all of this. 30 to $50 million a year is what Elon and Resorts World are going to add to win. What do you guys think? I believe that. I think, honestly, yeah. I think he's coming from a position of strength, right? He's, uh, the alternative is a dust bowl across the street. Clearly, it's way better to have people uh, coming in, and it's going to bring more people to that part of the strip. It's going to bring <laughs> more people into town. And if he believes, as I think, you know, we, it's pretty clear just from his statements and, his, frankly, his ego, and to be honest, just the place is pretty darn nice – that they do have the best product or at least compete for that title. And so why, you know, if you do have the best product, you really don't have anything to worry about. I'm curious also, just to throw another question at you guys, when those two properties are built, you know, we've got the Elan, which I imagine is going to be a, a more of a boutique thing. They're spending less money, but it's going to be high scale. And Resorts World, which is a little more mass market further away up on the Encore side. How exactly is that going to change the Encore win facade facing the front? You know, is, are things going to change up by the, the north entrance by Encore? You know, are they going to well, rip out some things? And yeah. is the street going to become active there instead of just a giant sidewalk? Think about that for a minute, right? If you follow yeah. the pattern that you have at other intersections, if the volume increases, then you're going to have to start putting in overhead walkways, and you're going to want to try to integrate those so that they empty out into your resort. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, assuming that sort of that trend continues, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them try to integrate something that would dump people into Encore. I, hopefully that doesn't mean they, you know, have to, to kill the Sinatra restaurant to do it, but yeah. um, I wouldn't at all be surprised to see them try and, assuming, you know, this is obviously going to be years down the road, but assuming yeah. that they do do overhead walkways and stuff, you've got to think that they're going to try and suck those people right into the resort. Yeah. The whole, the stairway right in front uh, by the uh, beach club, that's going to yeah. be totally different, because yeah. that's probably where the, the, the walkway might dump off. 
right, right. there. Right. You could easily imagine that being reconfigured, right? There's a, yeah. obviously they've forced to to their benefit, they've got, you know, a fair amount of space to play with. But um yeah, you gotta think that if if those places are big successes and people are, you know, spending ten minutes at the stoplight, they that the county is gonna wanna put in yeah. some better flow and, and the resorts are gonna wanna tap right into it. One more thing about the money, the 30 to $50 million. Do you think that accounts with the people who might just go walk across the street to the other places? Oh, I mean, it's hard to say whether he's like literally just throwing out something off the top of his head or whether it's like an actual competitive analysis that someone did. I mean, I could believe, it could be either, frankly. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I, honestly, I don't – The no, him saying that, I, I, I think it's completely plausible yeah. what he's suggesting. I, I don't have any trouble believing it. But it's also a forward-looking statement that might it not is. certifiably <laughs> come true. <laughs> it is indeed. Yeah. yeah, I don't have any trouble believing those numbers. Like I, They seem totally plausible to me. Yeah. Pretty excited for that. Very excited. Yeah. Um, all right. I think we're going to call it a night, uh, and we will wrap things up. So before we go... We will uh, participate in a seance known as Sherbets, where we connect our hands together and recite the names of things that we want you to buy, um, or something like that. Uh, it's actually, this is an opportunity for us to recommend things to you, things that we think are interesting in, uh, in our lives. So... I'm going to go around my table here. Uh, Charles, do you have anything for us today? Start with Dave. Dave, do you have anything for us today? Oh. I absolutely do have something for you and for everybody who is a fan of Las Vegas history. Oh, great. My very good friend Larry Gregg, who is an excellent historian, has just come out with a brand new book. No, so you called, this. Yeah, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, The Gangster, The Flamingo, and The Making of Modern Las Vegas. And I was lucky enough to get, a, get to read it when it was in galleys or whatever they say, so before it was done. So I've got a little blurb in the back. And it's really a cool book. It's, Larry does a great job of getting through all that hype and all that misinformation about Siegel, and he really looks at what actually happened, and there's some fascinating stuff. So, for, so a lot of things that people said that were just kind of rumors and innuendo, he gets the bottom. So, for example, there was some kind of rumor going around that Siegel was in Italy, and some of the top members of the Nazi party crossed paths with him and he wanted to kill him but he didn't and Larry actually goes back and looks at his travel records and the travel records of these Nazis learned that like yeah this is plausible and as incredible as it sounds this meeting probably did happen hmm. so it's really interesting just a really interesting book it is a little bit on the pricey side because it's published by an academic publisher so they tend to be kind of pricey but it's a great book so highly highly recommended cool well um we'll put the link in the notes um yes dave send me I, that link and i'll make sure i get I, I just have sweet um Chuck, <laughs> you got something or yeah i did uh, i had okay. to i had to look up the details because i'm okay. i have a bad memory but uh my, my pick is, my sherbet is uh, one of the occasional papers from the Center for Gaming Research entitled Scouted, an Inadvertent Archive from the Search for a Cinematic Vegas by Catherine Borg. Oh. Uh, this is a fascinating little article here, which uh, apparently she came into possession of all the scouting materials for the movie Casino. 
Oh. So it's all about like some of these buildings and old photos pieced together uh, of the, the pool at the Riviera, um, uh, all sorts of apartment buildings and places and people where they work, the inside of La Concha and El Morocco and Glass Pool Inn uh, hotel rooms from 1994. It's not that far, but it's still really cool to see how these things were found, the state they were found, and how you know you may remember them in the movie. It's pretty awesome stuff. And and the thing that killed me really at the end was uh, she uh, she uh, talks about uh, copyright law, whether or not she could make a book out of this stuff. And uh, because it's found, it's basically all this information that's been found from multiple sources and who knows if the movie studio owns this who knows right. who owns this but she's got it and, and it's a big question about copyright law whether or not it can be uh, published and, and has some fun conclusions there really fascinating fun if you like the movie this is a really nice little nugget to stick in your back pocket cool. yeah thanks for mentioning that that's 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 really cool um it, she was really awesome she's an artist so she turns these collections of scouting photographs into a work of art, and it's really neat because it does convey a lot of emotion. And the, the collection she's using is from Maggie Mancuso, who scouted, she did the scouting for Casino and also for Mars Attacks and a couple other mm-hmm. movies. So we've got the Casino stuff in special collections. I don't think we have Mars Attacks. I think we're trying to see if we can get that from her, but it's, it's really neat. Yeah. And I, yeah, also she's got a podcast. So if you want to listen to that, you can see this. there's a slideshow, too, for the podcast with, with some stuff. And it's just neat because, I don't know, it's just really cool. It is cool. Those, those rooms are totally awesome. Uh, <laughs> you guys ever want, are in at UNLV and want to come to look at it, you can, anybody can look at these. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. Uh, wow, wow. I'm going to definitely check that out. She also up. does, she talks about uh, technology too, like how they had to make these panoramas by shooting actual film photos huh. and then sticking them together. And then once once a week, Marty would, would, Scorsese would fly in and look at the photos and look at the stuff. They didn't just email it to him, like just take right. an iPhone panorama, boop, here's the whole room, gone. It had to go through all these steps. It would take weeks just to get stuff done. Amazing. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. I love yeah. that. That's great. Well, thanks, Chuck. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and thanks, Dave. Dave. Well. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Cool. Um, so, last but least, um, I'm actually not recommending anything. Like, I'm actually recommending you don't do this. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, the, uh, the Photos app on the Mac, so for ages, Apple's shipped an app called iPhoto that's been on the Mac for managing your photos. Um, and it's frankly a little long in the tooth these days. Um, and this week they released to uh, to um, developers a uh, a preview version of their upcoming Photos app, which is just called Photos. Um, and it's pretty cool. Like I'm saying, don't do this because I don't want to be responsible for. It's not a finished piece of software, and if it loses all your photos, I don't want to be in trouble. Um, <laughs> but. It's going to be, I think, a great update. So for those of you guys that are um, on the Mac, especially if you um, have an iPhone, they're connecting it all together in an even smarter way than before with iCloud and stuff. So it's going to be, um, sounds like it's going to be even better. So I'm pretty psyched on it. I think it's a nice update. iPhoto is an app that I sort of have a love-hate relationship with. And so um, I'm happy to see uh, something come along. It's wicked fast. Uh, So I don't know. It's very promising. It's coming out to 
customers in the spring, I think it's free, so you'll get that from Apple. But um, just a little preview of what is coming for those of you that have large photo libraries that care about that sort of thing. Yeah, man. Um, Granted, yeah. I have I have a pretty old iMac. Um, it's long in the tooth. It's ready to get uh, to upgraded, but I can't do anything if I have iPhoto open. A, yeah. I have a billions of photos, and B, this thing it just it's a nightmare. Yeah. So happy to hear that there's a new version. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a nice update. So, um, all right, I'll put a link for that in the show notes if people want to see screenshots of it. Um, in case you're curious. Um, all right, so that is it for today. Please. Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes. Um, it helps us out. It helps our ranking in the charts and the search engines and stuff. So please do that. Um, if you want to leave a comment about today's show, please visit VegasGangPodcast.com and find the post for this episode, and you can leave a comment there. Um, you can also reach us at VegasGang. I saw today um, that the dude that owns the Double Down and Frankie's Tiki Room followed us on Twitter. So if nice. you're out there listening, I actually haven't been to either one of your uh, establishments, but I hear they're fantastic, and yes. I would love to try them. So um, other folks out there, you can follow us on Twitter at VegasGang, or you can interact with us that way as well. Um, that is it for today. Thanks to you guys for being here. I'm going to go around one more time, and you can tell people where they can find you. Dr. Dave, if people want to hear more from you, where should they go? Oh, just for this. <laughs> I'll be. When I've got something to say, I'm sure I'll be somewhere. Voice from the heavens. I like that. Just a big, booming voice. <laughs> Grandissimo on TV. <laughs> uh, you've conquered all the other media, so I assume that TV show is next. Um... Chuck Monster, where can people find you? You can find me at VegasTripping.com. Mucho excelente. You've been uh, posting up a storm there, which is uh, always nice to see, so congrats on that. It Back is on cool the horse, see, man. man. Thank you. It's cool Good. to see. Um, people can download my iPhone app, VegasMate, from the iTunes App Store. And that way you can not contact me, but at least sort of live vicariously through the app. Um, <laughs> thanks to you guys. Have a great weekend. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Too.